Good morning. I predict this is going to be a great year for us as a church family, a year where together we'll discover a lot of opportunities disguised as challenges and problems. That's how opportunities always come, you know, in disguise. When life goes smoothly, we all have a tendency to get complacent and to take it easy. We can even begin to take God and his blessings for granted, and that's just human nature. When life is smooth sailing, we tend to leave God on the dock as we kind of sail off into the sunset. It's the storms that cause us to turn to Christ, that force us to depend on him, to rethink who we are and what we're doing. It's the rough waves and high winds that motivate us to, to seek Christ more honestly, more intensely, more passionately, because we recognize we're not in control and we don't have all the answers. The easy answers we were clinging to no longer do the job. And this year we need to be intentionally looking for Christ and the good things God has in store for us. Both as individuals and as a whole church family, we have to purposefully seek Christ. We have to put some energy and some emotion behind that because faith in Christ has to be more than just a nice idea. It's got to have legs. It's, it's got to get real. It's got to get into our daily schedule. It's got to permeate our, our thinking and our feeling and our relationships. It's got to impact what we do with our most precious things, our money, our time, and our people. And there's a word that describes all of that. A word that encompasses that whole thing about our life and, and faith in Jesus and how faith comes together in the everyday world. It's the word disciple. Disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Disciple, I mean, that's one of those churchy words that's used so much it's almost become meaningless. Uh, it's a throwaway kind of word. And, and that casual approach to our understanding of what it means to be a disciple is what lies at the root of many of our personal struggles and our struggles as a church family. I believe this is a year where we need to re rediscover what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's the focus of our messages in the series, De Decoding Discipleship. We're taking something that might be confusing or mysterious and putting it into words and ideas and actions that can make sense. And what's exciting to me is that God is raising up a, a new generation of voices like, like Francis Chan and Jen Hatmaker and others who are helping the church to rediscover being a disciple in a more organic way, simpler, closer to the original, where being a disciple of Jesus is less about programs run by the church and more about a lifestyle that pleases Christ and, and imitates his life. For the next two weeks, I'm going to try and define in a fresh way what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and I'll be relying heavily on some of their thoughts, especially Jen Hatmaker, because I think they are challenging American Christians to take being a disciple to a whole new level. Can you get excited about that for your faith? Whether you're brand new at this Jesus thing or a veteran believer, I think the next two weeks are going to surprise and challenge you in ways that you haven't experienced before. Are you with me so far? Okay. To get us started, I want to read a very familiar story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. It's the story of Mary and Martha. And some of you are, are already thinking, well, that's just a story about, you know, being too busy for God. Uh, how Martha is obsessing over her hospitality and Mary, you know, the calm one, gets it right by listening to Jesus while all the dishes pile up in the sink. 
And if you're a doer, you kind of hate that story, right? Well, I don't think that's the main point of the story. I don't think it's a story about conflicting personality types or getting your priorities straight. This is a story for disciples because it captures the essence of what it means to be a disciple. And so before we read, I just want us to take a moment to pray and say to the Lord, I need you to speak to me, Jesus. What do I need to hear from your God-breathed word? Show me something new. Show me something surprising. Would you just close your eyes and go ahead and pray that right now in a moment of silence? As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about so many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Amen. This is the word of God. What's going on here that makes this story so important when it comes to being a disciple? Well, whenever we read the Bible, the context matters. Context is what's going on around a passage, the background, the history, the culture. It's important to understand the context accurately in order to figure out what the Bible is saying. So let me spend a little time on the context. This event happened in Jesus' final six months on earth. A few years earlier, Jesus was a rising star, very popular with large crowds hanging on his every word. But at this point, he's gotten a lot of powerful enemies and they're conspiring against him. The crowds have kind of thinned out because Jesus' most recent teachings have started to make people nervous. And yet Mary and Martha were willing to open their home to him. To really get at this, we have to kind of go all the way back to the Jewish educational system in the first century. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, wrote about this when he said, above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. Well, why was educating their children so important to the Jewish people? Well, remember, Israel was a small nation. On the world stage, it wasn't significant at all. A tiny nation, occupied, conquered by the Romans. But Israel was significant in that they were the only people on earth who were worshiping the one true God. I mean, think about that. God had chosen them and had given them the special task of preparing the way for the Messiah to come. They would bless the whole world by being the vehicle God would use for the coming of the Savior. If they, if they didn't make it, then what? There was no plan B. If the word of God didn't go deep into their hearts and to their children generation after generation, then what? Faith in the one true God was one generation away from extinction. And so passing on the faith, I mean, that's big. It's true today. Faith is always one generation from extinction. Passing on the faith is absolutely critical. In the Talmud, which was sort of the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament scriptures during the time of Jesus, in the Talmud it says, under the age of six, we do not accept the child. But then we stuff him like an ox. At six years old, that's when they began educating their children. And there were three stages of education that a child could go through. The first stage was called Bet Sefar, which means house of the book. 
This was for all children ages 6 through 10, and it's the only stage that included girls. The children would go to the local synagogue each day, and they'd be taught by the rabbis, and the goal, the goal was to memorize word for word the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Word for word, memorize the entire Torah. Let me ask you, do you know any kids ages 6 through 10? Can you imagine them memorizing one chapter of the Bible, much less the entire Torah? I mean, I know our modern educational system has sort of given up on rote memorization, but maybe we're missing something here. Early on, the rabbi would do something special. Each child would get a piece of slate that they would use to write on with chalk because paper was extremely rare and very expensive. And the rabbi would then also give each child some honey. Honey was their most exotic special treat. They, they didn't have ice cream trucks or corner drugstores to buy candy. Honey was it. Honey was always included in special feasts, but it was definitely not an everyday thing. And the rabbi poured some on each slate and told kids to lick that honey. And then he'd say, may the words of God be honey on your tongue. He set them up for loving God's word. Basically saying there's nothing more wonderful than putting God's word into your heart. And that's why there are verses in the Bible like Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The psalmist is reflecting on his childhood and his Beth Safar. After this stage of learning, it was the end of the road for girls. And for most of the boys, most then would just stay home and ply the family trade. But a handful of exceptional boys, ages 10 through 14, the brightest and the sharpest, they were invited to continue as junior scholars, and this level of learning was called Bet Midrash, the house of learning. Bet Midrash had two objectives. First, to learn basic interpretations of the Bible and to develop their higher level thinking skills. They, they did this by asking and answering questions. The rabbi would ask a question, and in order to show how much they knew, the child would ask a question back, sort of like, I see your question, and I raise you one. It was kind of an interesting way of learning. Then the second objective was to memorize the remainder of the Jewish scriptures, the Psalms, the history books, the prophets. I mean, we're talking fifth to eighth graders here. I mean, how do we even make sense of this? Well, you know, that is done right now in Islamic schools. That's the curriculum of the Taliban. Memorize the Quran in Arabic. And we wonder why Muslim kids in general know their faith better than Christian children. So these second-level boys, they take it up a notch. Now Jesus actually went through this stage of learning on his way of be to becoming a rabbi. It makes sense that he would be selected for superior scholarship. It also helps us to understand that story in Luke 2 where, remember when Jesus' parents, they lost him for three days? Mary was terrified three days. I mean, you lose your kid for three minutes and you're in panic mode. Jesus was found where? In the temple. Asking and answering questions with the rabbis. Mary finds him and Jesus basically says, where'd you think I'd be? You know, I kind of used to read that story and think Jesus needed a spanking, you know, like he's being talking back to Mary. But now I understand that Jesus was not being sassy. He was in the middle of Bet Midrash. And he was saying, this is where I always am when I'm not at home with you. At age 14 or 15, most of those talented boys got sent home to their families. Only the very tip-top would go on to that third stage, Beth Talmud, which means becoming a disciple. 
You see, to be a rabbi was one of the most honored professions in the ancient Jewish culture. At this stage, a boy would then have to approach a noted, established rabbi and ask, plead, if he could become that rabbi's disciple. The rabbi would test him to see if he was worthy, would rake him over the coals with all the toughest questions, an oral exam to find out, do you have what it takes to follow me? Becoming a rabbi would be a huge honor for the young man and his family, and so to be dismissed at this point would also be a crushing blow. But once accepted as a disciple, the teenager would leave everything, leave his home, his parents, his village, his dad's business, his people. He would follow that rabbi 24-7. To be a disciple was a life-altering decision. You have to give your whole life to this. So think of Matthew 4.18. Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, in a fishing boat. These guys were never selected. They got sent home to do the family business, probably didn't even make it to stage two. No one had ever said that they had anything special going on. And yet Rabbi Jesus says, follow me. Do you see that that's not the way it's supposed to happen? The rabbi never invites. People beg to follow a rabbi, beg and plead. They have to prove that they're worthy, but not to Jesus. You see how he turns things around? He invites, and Scripture tells us at once they left their nets and followed him. And then Jesus does the same thing with the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Jesus calls, and they leave everything to follow. Now, didn't I always think that was kind of weird? I mean, why would they do that? Why would they leave their dad in the boat? They didn't really have a clue who Jesus was. This young rabbi's on the shore calling to them. He's opening up a window of honor that had long been closed to them. This was an amazing moment. I want you to be my disciple. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I mean, it was such a great honor. It was like out of the blue being given a full scholarship to Harvard after getting a 500 combined score on your SATs. So, of course, they dropped everything and followed him. Such an honor to be called by Rabbi Jesus. Dad was probably kicking those boys out of the boat. Swim faster, you know. You can hear the father rushing back to his wife saying, Our boys, both of them, they were chosen. Both were chosen as disciples. We thought they were lug nuts, dull as dirt, and they were chosen. It was an amazing honor to be chosen as a disciple of Jesus. And so this rabbi-disciple relationship in Bet Talmud, how did it work? The young disciples were to mimic, imitate, emulate every single word, mannerism, interpretation, even movement of their rabbi. 24-7, they followed him. Physically everywhere, they would even follow him into the bathroom and, and say bathroom blessings while he was doing his business. It was said you were a good disciple if you walked at all times so close to your rabbi that the dust of his sandals would kick up and cover the front of your robe. I mean, that's close. The point was not to learn from your rabbi and then develop your own brand of ministry. No, the point was to become exactly like your rabbi. Walk and talk exactly like him. And the rabbis were all different. They each had their own particular interpretations and in what they would emphasize. And the point was to take the Old Testament law and each rabbi would add their own extra rules or limits or interpretations. They'd pile it on top of this already heavy thing called the law. Jen Hatmaker puts it this way. She says, let's say the law says do not dance. Well, then a rabbi might say, if you're walking down a street and you trip on a rock, 
when you fall, you know, don't wave your hands around because someone 50 feet away might think you're dancing. So just, you know, put your hands at your side and fall face first on, on the ground. The point was for the rabbi was to ask, how can we take the law, examine every possible potential nuance, and turn it into an extra rule so we can prove just how holy we are? All those extras were called by a special term. It was called the rabbi's yoke. You know, the wooden thing that you put on an oxen to pull a plow or wagon? A yoke. It was said you could tell which rabbi a disciple was following by the yoke he was carrying. I know that guy's a disciple of Rabbi X because I saw him fall, a trip and fall, and he fell flat on his face without using his arms, so we know exactly which rabbi he's following. Does this help make sense of when Rabbi Jesus makes the announcement in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear how precious and powerful and appealing his words would be to ordinary people in the first century? So refreshing, so different. Let go of all your man-made rules and just learn from me. It was an open invitation to Beth Talmud. For everyone, no wonder all the other rabbis took offense at Jesus for, it, for this because they took pride in being the most difficult to follow. Our yokes tell others how holy we are. Look at all these rules we follow. That shows how holy we are. And Jesus flips it. He says, I'm going to give you rest. No wonder people flock to him. Now when they traveled, the rabbis and their disciples relied on local hospitality. They stayed in homes wherever they went because it was a great honor to house a rabbi. The Talmud also said, let your house be a meeting place for the rabbis and cover yourself in the dust of their feet and drink in their words thirstily. And so Jesus and his motley crew of scholarly rejects comes walking into Bethany and Mary and Martha are honored to host Rabbi Jesus and his disciples. Hospitality was so important. They were doing exactly what the Talmud said they should do. Open their home. But it's not a working or not working story. Not a busy or not busy story. Here's the key. Mary understood that she was being taught by the rabbi. This was a privilege given only to the smartest young men. And yet Jesus invited ordinary, unspectacular people to follow him. He even invites women to be his disciples. A famous first century rabbi named Eliezer once wrote, Rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. In other words, the common rule of the day was that it was a waste of time to teach women. And yet Martha has been offered a seat at the feet of Jesus and she's missing it. She's doing what she's supposed to do and doesn't realize she's actually being invited into being a disciple. Jesus is trying to explain this to her. She's invited too. Martha, this is your jump out of the boat and swim to the shore moment. And she was in danger of missing it. Martha wanted to honor Rabbi Jesus with her hospitality, but Jesus wanted to honor her, bestow on her the honor of being a disciple. And so this entire system, this disciple system, it has profound implications for us. Because if we go back to the way it used to be in the first century, what do we learn? If we call ourselves disciples, it means first and foremost recognizing what an honor it is for us to be welcomed, included, invited. Some of us may need to kind of back the truck up a bit and be still for a minute and really receive the honor of being a disciple. 
if this following of Jesus thing has started to feel heavy for you, then you're doing it wrong. If you think getting to church on time for worship is a burden, you're doing it wrong. You're missing out on what it means to be a disciple because humans prefer to kind of drag around a heavy yoke. You know, I want, to see other, I want other people to see what a heavy yoke I'm carrying. Jesus makes us this incredible offer to be a disciple. Maybe nobody else on earth sees your value, but Jesus does. And he chooses you through his sacrifice to carry out his mission. What a joy and a gift and not a burden. Maybe you've never really received that as an honor. Maybe you're thinking, you know, you don't know my past. I'm not going to be chosen by Jesus. No matter what your flaws or what's going on right now, he's looking on you with eyes of mercy. Because we bring nothing to the table. Jesus is enough. And maybe for the very first time you need to receive this honor. Maybe this is your jump out of the boat and swim to shore moment. When you finally recognize that you are being honored by Jesus who invites you to be his disciple. Now think of those boys following around their teacher. Discipleship in one way or another has always meant leaving something. At an initial point of salvation, maybe there's a lot to leave behind. Hurt, sin, shame, condemnation, fear, doubt. You don't have to carry those things around anymore. You don't have to carry them as a penance. If your faith is a heavy burden, then you're not doing it right. You don't understand grace. If God the Father himself looked upon the work of the cross and said it was finished and it was enough, then how dare we say it isn't? How dare we say it's not enough for me? Recognizing first and foremost that being a disciple is an honor. Jump out of the boat. Swim to him. Put down the pots and pans and soak in who Jesus is. And that's the second thing. It's supremely important that we sit at the feet of Jesus and drink in his words thirstily. If discipleship means imitating our teacher, then how can we know what Jesus was like if we don't read his word? If we don't immerse ourselves in the word of God, what was Jesus like? Who did he speak to? Why did he ask all those questions? You know, who, what, when, where, why, and and what now? What else can we do but study God's word? And that's why this community Bible experience is so important. All of us reading the entire New Testament together, you're invited. You don't have to memorize anything, but you're invited to get your own free copy of the New Testament. You're invited to read it in chunks five days a week or or listen to it by downloading the MP3 files, whatever works for you. And you're invited to talk about what you've read with others in kind of a book club type discussion. We want you to get into some kind of a short-term, eight-week discussion group because the Word of Christ is living and active. It's a change agent in your heart. And so you're invited. If we can approach the Word of Jesus again like a first-century disciple, then we become hungry to learn everything we can about our Savior. We drink in His Word thirstily. You know, if your number one hesitation about joining in the community Bible experience is that you don't think you'll have the time, then friends, you're living your life the wrong way. If learning from the words of Jesus is a burden for you, and I have to, then you're doing your faith wrong. It's an I get to. It's an honor, opportunity, invitation from Christ itself to really be a disciple. As a whole church family, we get to experience meaningful, rich, transformative Bible study, which has nothing to do with you asking a lot of questions, 
or, or having a lot of answers, but in asking a lot of questions like the rabbinical method. Ask a lot of questions. Why, why, why? Just like an eager student would do. And, and don't worry about not knowing every answer. Because we don't come to the Word of God with only the limits of our intelligence. We come with the power of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised would be our teacher and guide. So every time before you read one word of Scripture, you should pray to the Holy Spirit. Teach me. Show me. Illumine me. Invite the power of the Holy Spirit to have power over you. You're not alone in this thing. Jesus honors you with an invitation. Come, follow me, sit at my feet, truly be my disciple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to really grasp the enormity of this invitation that you would choose to honor us, choose us, open the door for us to be your disciple. We thank you, Lord, that you've chosen us because we're not worthy. We're not the smartest and brightest. We should have been sent home packing. But Lord, you open the door. You invite us now. Help us to have that desire to sit at your feet and to drink in your words thirstily so that we can become more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.